I have entitled this message, Why Did Jesus Have to Die? The idea behind all of this is it's very deep, very rich. In Romans 3.25 and 26, we come to a very critical passage. It's a vital one, this text in front of us. I'd like to read it immediately before we go any farther. Paul writes and he says of Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. He repeats it. Why? That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's almost to say that he might be a God who could do the impossible for us, to be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Christ. This text, reading it over, it's got a lot of theological phrases in it, words. It's hard to understand. I would venture to say reading it alone the first time by yourself, you'd probably misunderstand almost all of it. And yet, once understood, it permanently alters your view of God and his massive airtight plan of salvation. This text deals with the issue of why Jesus had to die. I don't know how many questions you have asked yourself or God or the Bible about these things, but one major question is why did Jesus have to die for God to forgive me? If you think about the fact that as Christians, God commands us to forgive. Does anybody have to die in that process? If you offend me, you apologize, I forgive you, does anybody have to die? No. But then, if that's the way it is with God and He commands us to live that way, why doesn't He just practice what He preaches? Why can't He, who is love, He tells us, God is love. Why can't He just quit making such a fuss about the whole thing and just say, I understand completely and I forgive you? Why can't He do that? That's a legitimate question, don't you think? Why does everything have to point to the cross? I think to the modern mind, the cross is a ghastly thing. I think humanly speaking, the cross is a horrific thing. There hangs a bleeding, tortured man who didn't deserve anything that he got. To look at it spiritually, from a spiritual negative angle, when Jesus Christ cries out and he says, My God, why have you forsaken me? That is a hellish, horrific is a good word, thought. And you have to stand back and say, why, why? Why all of that? Why not just say, I love you, I forgive you? Well, these are good questions, I think. But in the end, they are far too simplistic. Because to say, why does Jesus have to die for my sins is to not understand the staggering reality of sin, period. Take the S off. Sin, period in the sight of an utterly holy God. It's to not understand that at all. Archbishop Anselm at the end of the 11th century said, if anybody imagines that God can simply forgive us as we forgive others, that person has never yet considered the seriousness of sin and the weight of it before an utterly holy God. 
The staggering reality of sin enters in here. The absolute holiness of God enters in here. The original declaration of God concerning sin enters in here. God said, you sin, you what? Die. So now, death is in the picture. And it has to be in the picture because of God's declaration. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, there are some things very clearly set forth in this passage. First of all, to satisfy God's justice. Secondly, to demonstrate God's righteousness. And that embraces all of His glory as well. Third, to clear God's name, which will take us down an avenue you may have never gone in your thoughts at all. Fourth, we probably won't get to it, to provide justification, God's justification. Though I'll, I'll try to get that far. But we must understand everything leading up to it. Might as well say right here that a lot of the things we're going to study last week, this week in the book of Romans, there's going to be questions raised that won't be answered in the particular message. So how can you study God in one message and not have a lot of leakage, you know, left over? I mean, there's going to be questions. I know that. That's actually good. Because then you go wondering and you're engaged in thoughts about God and your walk with God. That keeps you out of sin. So that's good. Some things I just put out there on purpose to keep you out of sin. To say, as we did last week, that you cannot earn your salvation. There's not one thing you can do to earn it. Your works have nothing to do with God saving you. Is immediately to raise the question, then what is the place of works in the Christian life and why even do them? Well, those questions will be answered as we move along. So you don't want to miss any of the messages in the book of Romans. For those of you that have no real concern for witnessing when you leave this building to people that don't know Christ, you should. And a lot of what's in today's message should minister directly to that area of your life. Let's talk about how Jesus died to satisfy God's judgment. He died to satisfy the justice of God against sin. Look at Romans 3.25. He says, Whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. I want you to be able to understand these things when we're done. So we'll move through them a little at a time. This word here, propitiation, it's at the heart of the whole matter here. The meaning of the word propitiation, the Greek word is hilasterion. It means literally a, a satisfaction. So Jesus, when he died... And he shed his blood, provided a satisfaction to God in the sense of God's justice. If God said, and he did, the day you sin you will surely die. If he's going to be just and true as God, he must carry that through as well as the penalty for all of that. So that if you're a sinner, a holy God is going to have judgments against your sin. Those judgments must be carried out. They must be, as it were, satisfied. The Bible is telling us here that Jesus became the complete satisfaction for our sin. To put it another way, He was our substitute. And when He was finished, God's judgment was totally satisfied 
for all of those, the text says, through faith, for all of those that come to believe on Him, to trust in Him, cling to Him, rely upon Him for their salvation. Those alone. Not for just anybody and everybody, whether they acknowledge Him or not, but for those that come to Christ. So, coming to Christ then, you find God is totally satisfied by the blood of Jesus. And even at that, it isn't even just the blood that trickled out of the wounds. It's the entire offering of the Son of God in all that He was up to God, bearing your sin and the justice of God against your sin, bearing it for you. When you read in the Bible, by His blood, it speaks of all that He was and all that He offered. Just turn over to, hold your thumb here, and turn to Romans 8.32. Speaks of Jesus as our substitute, bearing all of the justice we deserved, all the judgment. He says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Spared not speaks of the fact that God vented His full justice, His full wrath against sin on His Son. Every ounce, every bit of it completely for your sin was borne by His Son. He sweeps all of us in when He says, delivered Him up for us all. So He spared Him not. As our substitute, He bore completely the judgment of God. When He then rose from the dead victorious over sin. He rose for our justification, the Bible says. We'll study that in Romans. And in rising in victory then, God was left completely satisfied for the payment that He offered for the judgment that He bore. And the result of that then is complete satisfaction. So go back to Romans 3.25. When you read this word propitiation, satisfaction, it is because of this that God can show us mercy. There's an Old Testament translation called the Septuagint. And it was put together hundreds of years ago. Because the common language of the day was not Hebrew but Greek. So they translated the Old Testament into Greek. And when you go to look at the, the sacrifices and all of that in the Old Testament Leviticus going to look at it in the Septuagint translation. You'd be reading it in Greek. To come to where you deal with the Ark of the Covenant, to come to deal with that, you come to realize that in the Ark of the Covenant it was a small box type thing, covered with gold. Over the top, there were, sitting on top of it, on the lid effectively, there were two gold-covered angels, cherubim. And their wings, if you see it in a picture, their wings are covering their face in humble reverence before the presence of God. The ark sat in the Holy of Holies in the temple. In that little cubicle, as it were, only the high priest could go there one time a year. That was on Yom Kippur, the great day of atonement. And everybody else had to minister the other priest in the holy place, which was separated by a hugely thick veil. Outside of that was the court of the priests where they made the sacrifices. Behind that was the court of the men. Behind that was the court of the women. Behind that was the court of the Gentiles. So in the heart of this whole place is the Holy of Holies. There the Shekinah glory of God would appear. And it would appear and hover over the Ark of the Covenant. Thus the angels 
are shielding their faces from the glory of God in reverence and awe and worship, that's on the lid of the ark. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant, there was, among a couple of other things, the tablets with the Ten Commandments. Speaking of the demands of the Holy God to His people, on the great day of atonement, the high priest would take what was called the scapegoat. They would sacrifice the goat. He would go in with that blood and he would sprinkle it on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. So here is this golden box. Inside is the Ten Commandments with its demands on God's people, unmet. Here is the sacrificial blood then covering the lid. And at that point, the lid covered with the blood was referred to as the mercy seat. So that the blood met the demands effectively of the law, the sacrifice. The unmet demands are met by the blood of the sacrifice. And what would otherwise be a place of judgment becomes on the great day of atonement, the great forgiving day of the year for the Jews, becomes a place not no longer of judgment, but a place of mercy because of the blood of the sacrifice. Reading through the Septuagint translation in the Greek, you would be reading along. You'd come to that part about the mercy seat, and the word is helisterion. It's the exact same word as we're looking at in our text today. If you join the picture in the Old Testament together with the New Testament teaching right here in Romans, what you get, the picture becomes this. Jesus, by His blood, fully satisfied the demands of the law, because by the law no man will be justified. He fully satisfied God. He becomes effectively the mercy seat for us, and He turns the throne of God, which will be the great white throne of judgment for all those that reject Christ, He turns the throne of God into a place of mercy rather than judgment for anybody that will come confessing and turning from their sins and embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior. What a beautiful thing that is. What a necessary thing that is. What a gracious thing that is. And so the Bible foretelling in Psalm 85.10 said, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. So Jesus died to satisfy God's justice. Let's go to the second thing. He died to demonstrate God's righteousness. He declared, the text says, God's righteousness. Notice that um, Paul says it in verse 25, and then in verse 26, he says it again, to demonstrate at the present time his Righteousness. When you look at that word righteousness concerning God, you have to see in it something beyond sinlessness. It embraces all of God's attributes. His wrath, His justice, His long-suffering, His mercy, His love, His holiness. It's all bound up in that, summed up by one word, glory. Glory. So, God... Set forth Christ, in the words of the text, set forth Christ, the incarnation, God comes to the world. Set him forth on the cross. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And he does it, the Bible tells us here, to demonstrate God's righteousness or to declare to the world, to the universe, to the angels, to the demons, to everyone, the glory of God. 
And that's the point of the text. Now, Paul says, demonstrate his righteousness twice, I think, to warm up our hearts and our thoughts to it because the idea of Jesus on the cross for God is pretty much foreign to us. Jesus in our minds is on the cross for us, right? That's all right, it's true. But behind that, more importantly, Jesus is on the cross for the glory of God. One of the problems we run up against when we get to a text like this and to think like this is that we don't think like this. In other words, the, the bottom line impact of this text should be that you go away seeking to live for the glory of God above all other things. That your life would be captivated by His honor. That you would become obsessed with what pleases Him, not what pleases you. When we read that He came to set forth God's righteousness, you understand if you look at the creation, in uh, the first chapter, Paul laid out in Romans that all of creation testifies of the glory of God. The Psalms say, look up, the heavens declare His glory. All of creation exists to declare the glory of God. Man is a creation of God. Man was created in God's image. So all of that comes to bear here. The ultimate purpose of all creation is to glorify God. The ultimate purpose of your salvation is the glory of God. And when you begin to see that, your life will be dramatically altered. See, what has happened is that in a selfist society, so much gospel preaching is also selfist. It's kind of like caught in the package. So that you want to win people to Christ, tell them how it will help them. So, so much preaching involves, if you have a loveless, lonely life, come to Christ and you'll have a love-filled life and you'll never be lonely again, which is true and wonderful. So much of it is, if you have problems, Jesus will help you. So, because so much gospel preaching centers on that, then you're converted under that kind of preaching, then so much of the Christian life has to do with getting the blessings of God. Converted because you're told you'll get them, now converted wanting to get them. So that in the end we become, even as good Christians, very preoccupied with self-satisfaction. I want the peace that passes understanding. I want the joy unspeakable. What do I have to do to get it? The bottom line of it all is, if we're not careful, we end up with a Christianity that centers on ourselves. When Christianity should center on God, that created in His image, we exist to glorify Him. We exist to worship Him in spirit and in truth. We don't exist for us. And God made man in his own image and then turned it all over him and he became God and God became his servant. No, we exist to glorify God. Therefore, the ultimate end of salvation is the glory of God. When you begin to live that way, you are truly seeking first the kingdom of heaven and truly all things will follow. Thus, to cease to live for your own glory your own self-satisfaction, even in a Christian sense, and live for the glory of God utterly, will be to find as a byproduct full satisfaction. 
That's the right order. That is the order of the text, that Jesus has come and ultimately died for the glory of God. That is the ultimate purpose of his text. So when you read here that he came to demonstrate his righteousness, and he says it twice, that's the idea, the glory of God. And I believe it's possible. I believe it's possible to come to a place as a Christian where you really live like that. And that when you do come to live for the glory of God utterly, then you will care about telling others about Him. You see, if I only live for my next blessing, then I'm going to be preoccupied with my next blessing. If I live to glorify God, then I will live to see His glory in every life around me. Thus, I'll be greatly concerned to share the gospel. And so I say, if you who are the light of the world never share the gospel in your neighborhoods, on your job, if you haven't got a genuine sense of responsibility to share Christ, it's probably because at the very center of your being you don't live utterly for the glory of God, but you love the Lord, you're saved, and you're living to get your next blessing. And I'm not saying this to just condemn you and make you feel horrible. I'm saying this to lift you to a higher level so that we can fulfill God's glory in our midst and in our world. David Brainerd was dying. He was on his deathbed. And his biographer, who was his father-in-law, Jonathan Edwards, incredible man of God in his own right, recorded his words as he was dying asked about what heaven he thought was going to be for him, David Brainerd, a great missionary to the Indians in our country. He said, My heaven is to please God and glorify Him, to give all to Him, to be wholly devoted to His glory. I do not go to heaven to be advanced, but to give honor to God. It is no matter where I will be stationed in heaven, whether I have a high seat or a low seat, he said, but to live and to please and to glorify God. That's my heaven. Open your Bible and read in Revelation. You know what you see in there? Exactly that. I pray that as we study the book of Romans, as we study the truth, that God will lift us. That as I read that the ultimate purpose of Christ's death is to glorify God, that that will be the ultimate purpose of my life because that's why He saved me. Let's move on in this. Paul begins to unfold this great truth. He says to demonstrate his righteousness. Now, in verse 25, you see that. You see it in the next verse. What does he mean by his righteousness? If you were just alone reading your Bible, first time you had ever read that, you'd probably think, well, the righteousness he gives to me when I get saved, that's how I'm saved. Thus, it would become your righteousness in Christ. That's not the point. Reading it again, you might think to demonstrate His righteousness, Christ righteously dying for me, the sinless Son of God. That's not the point either. To demonstrate His righteousness, His, God the Father. But in what sense? Well, it has to do with what you read in verse 25. If you look there, God set him forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. It has to do with this. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over sin. He had passed over sin that were previously committed. Not your sin, but the sins of the people in the Old Testament. What happened was this. 
people in the Old Testament were forgiven for their sins. But Christ hadn't died yet. So how do you reconcile that? That brings us to our next point. Jesus died to satisfy God's justice. Jesus died to declare his righteousness. But Jesus also died to clear God's name. Now we're going to get into an area you probably have never thought about before, unless you've studied this in detail. It says here that he might be the just and the justifier. Here's a problem. God is love. Thus, God wants to forgive sinners. But God is holy. In all the Bible, when you read of the characteristics of God, the only one repeated three times in a row is the holiness of God that's found in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. He's holy. If He's holy, He must judge sin. He's all loving. He wants to forgive sin. How can He do both? Seems like He has to do one or the other. How could he be just and not make us pay for our sin when he said that we would have to? Look at it like this. Imagine a courtroom scene. You can do that easily. That's all we are faced with in the news these days. Imagine a courtroom scene. And here's the defendant. The whole case is presented. The judge is there. Jury goes out to deliberate. They come right back in. Your Honor, we have found the defendant guilty. And it's so clear that we were able to deliberate in two minutes and come back. The judge says, the court finds you guilty. But, however, the judge says to the defendant, you know, I've really grown to like you during the trial, and I'm kind of lonely, and I I never had a daughter, and I I would like to adopt you. And Do you like yachts? I have a great yacht. We'll go yachting as soon as I adopt you. Do you like the sun? You want a tan? You can get a tan. Or, I never had a son. I'm lonely. I want to adopt you. The court says, but wait, they're guilty. I know, I know, I know, but I'm so lonely. And I, oh, you're so cute, and I want to adopt you. So the judge announces to the court, there will be no sentence to be paid here because I'm going to adopt the defendant, and he's going to be in my family, and we're going to have a great time from now on. Court would be in an uproar. That could never happen. It would be wrong, wouldn't it? Well, now think about your Bible. Think about what you know of the Old Testament. Think about Moses, who committed some sins. Think about Abraham, about David, who sinned in front of the whole nation with adultery and murder. Think about the fact that God forgave all these people. He effectively did exactly what I just said. At least it appears that that's what he did. He says to David, he sends Nathan the prophet, you're unrepentant. Nathan tells him a big story. David repents of his, all of his sin. And Nathan's response is, you shall not die. The law said, commit adultery, you will die. You'll be executed. Nathan says, God has told me, you will not die. What did God do there? He basically said, you know what? I really like you. You're my son. You've been the man after my own heart. I want you to be part of my house. In fact, I want you to know I will, through your consecutive series of thrones, your descendants, I will bring the Messiah and so on. Effectively, he says, I love you. I forgive you. So here is all of heaven. Here are all the fallen angels, demons. They were cast out of heaven. There's no way back. They're watching all this. Oh, so God just forgives whenever he feels like it. We're sentenced to hell forever. He feels like forgiving this adulterous, murdering man, David. I feel like it. That's wrong. And you've got about billions of fallen angels saying this. That's wrong. It's echoing throughout the universe. You see the picture? So here is God. 
And he's got another guy and forgives him. Another guy forgives him. Not her. Forgives her. How could he do that? What it amounted to over a period of time is God wanted to be just. He wanted to be a justifier. Created effectively a problem in the universe. Because for 4,000 years, this went on. When you read in your Bible, Jesus went to the cross and he died to declare the righteousness of God because in his forbearance, God forgave sins. Pass by them is what it actually says, which is the accurate text. It creates what seems to be a scandal. And so Jesus comes to solve that problem and clear God's name. Listen to the words of Kenneth Weiss. He said, It was this passing by of sin before the cross in the sense that God saved believing sinners without having their sins paid for, thus bestowing mercy without having justice satisfied, which would make God appear as if he condoned sin. That had to be set right in the thinking of the human race. The matter was always right in the eyes of God, for he looked forward to the satisfaction of the broken law at the cross. It makes no difference with God whether he saves sinners before or after the cross. Because the cross is an eternal fact in the reckoning of God. Of course, the cross had to come, for a righteous God could not pass by sin, but must require the sin be paid for, his justice must be satisfied, and his government must be maintained. So when you read that Jesus died to declare the righteousness of God, what it is saying is that Jesus died to prove, in a sense, that God is not whimsical and capricious and a soft, extraordinarily lenient old grandfather type on the throne who got soft start forgiving everybody, but rather that when the blood was placed on the mercy seat, when David was forgiven... When the scapegoat ran into the wilderness, when the Passover lambs died, every single bit of it was pointing to the ultimate sacrifice. God is not in time. The cross is always now with him. So that from the very beginning, in the mind of God, there was the cross. So any forgiveness that he gave was given based on the reality of the cross to come. And the thing that boggles my mind here is the airtight flawless consistency of God. That's why I say the more you study these things, the more you appreciate God as you understand Him. I mean, everything, every detail, every drop of blood, every lamb sacrificed, every goat running into the wilderness on the great day of atonement, every single bit of it points to Christ. So that when those people were forgiven, the term used is the sins were passed over. They were allowed to live. They were allowed to fellowship with God And when they died, where did they go? Jesus told the thief on the cross, This day you will be with me in paradise. Jesus told the story of the beggar man who died, and the rich man died also. The beggar man went to where Abraham was in paradise. The rich man, who was evil and unrepentant, went to the other side. And there he was in torment. Abraham was all blessed, and there's the beggar guy with him. He's all blessed. There are two compartments there. So when you died as an Old Testament saint, you didn't go to heaven. You went to, you just said it, paradise. 
Paradise, if I could put it this way, in mundane terms, was a holding tank. Why? Because their sins were passed by. They weren't really, truly, yet completely forgiven because Christ hadn't paid the price yet. They were forgiven looking toward the sacrifice. So the Bible tells us when Jesus died, He went into that place and He heralded His triumph. To the righteous ones, He heralded His triumph and He says, Get ready, we're leaving. To the other ones, the unsaved ones, He heralded His triumph and He said, Stay here, you're going nowhere. Until the great white throne judgment, then you're going to hell forever. Effectively, that's what happened. Then Ephesians said he led captivity captive. He took Abraham, the beggar, the thief on the cross, all the Old Testament saints, and they all went to heaven. So Old Testament saints were forgiven, but they were held in a holding tank of paradise until Christ died and truly satisfied the justice of God. Then they could be allowed to go into heaven. And thus, you begin to understand why Jesus Christ had to die. And the thing that is amazing to me is how God worked this all out from the very beginning. I don't know if you've ever asked this question. I've thought about it a lot. I understand it now. Have you ever asked the question, okay, I understand now Jesus would die for me, but how could he die for me? Have you ever thought about that? How could he die for me? In the sense, not of his love, but how could this substitute thing work? I mean... If the wages of sin is death, how can God just say, well, we'll get a substitute to die? How could He do that? Have you ever thought about that? Well, you should if you haven't. This is our salvation here. What happened is this. God created man, and He put him in the garden. His name was, is Adam, as we know him in the Bible. God chose to make Adam our representative so that technical term would be the federal head of the human race. Adam in representing all that would be his offspring genetically, literally. He sinned. He now produces a polluted sinful race. All of his offspring are there. Whereas once there was one perfect man and woman in the garden, now there are two sinful people in the garden. They have little babies and they're sinful. So soon you have a whole clan of them, soon you have a whole race of them. The entire race is polluted with sin. Now we're into the doctrine of original sin. Versus am I born not a sinner and what kind of sin is God holding me accountable for here? Which comes later in Romans. So now you've got this whole race of these little sinful creatures. The real issue then becomes in salvation. How do we redeem, how do we overturn this polluted race of creatures I've made? Well, because Adam was the representative, you are born guilty of your sin because of what he did. God holds us accountable because of our head. We came from him. Because God set it up that way, God also made it possible then for that which drove us into sin was by a representative. That which will take us out can be by a representative too. It all goes back to the very beginning. When you understand that, you can begin to further embrace what Christ has done for you as your second Adam. Because in the end in the Bible, God looks at you in one of two places. You're either in Adam unredeemed or you're in Christ, the second Adam redeemed. Charles Spurgeon came to understand this. Listen to his words. He said, I came to understand that salvation was possible through vicarious sacrifice and that provision had been made in the first constitution an arrangement of things for such a substitution. 
I was made to see that he who is the Son of God, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, had of old been made the covenant head of a chosen people that he might in that capacity suffer for them and save them. Inasmuch as our fall was not at first a personal one, for we fell by the first Adam, it became possible for us to be recovered by a second representative. We are saved by him who has undertaken to be the covenant head of his people in order to be their second Adam. I saw that before I had actually sinned, I had fallen by my first father's sin. I rejoiced that therefore it became possible in point of law for me to rise by a second head and representative, the fall by Adam left a loophole of escape and another Adam can undo the ruin made by the first. That's why Jesus can die for us and God can accept it. And the Bible is full of types of that. So how then can God be the just and the justifier of sin? It's because Jesus bridged that gap he paid the full price. The full penalty was taken by him. God was fully satisfied. Thus he swung open the door for God to be merciful for us. And thus we have salvation in Christ. And at that point, based on the death of Jesus, the human race has a way back through a new representative. Now we're going to end this all up. That is why there is only one way to God. Does that make sense to you? That is why there can only be one way to God. Buddha did not die for anyone's sins. Muhammad did not die for anyone's sins. Mahatma Gandhi, who rejected Christianity after he studied it, died a confused, empty man by his own words. There is only one substitute for your sins. It's Jesus Christ. To have another Adam, another representative, die in our place and bear our sin, he would have to be a man himself who had no sin. To be a man who could live his whole life and never sin, he'd have to be more than man, wouldn't he? Adam proved that. He would have to be God somehow. Somehow he'd have to be God and man, perfect and sinless. The Jews in John 10, listening to Jesus preach, they said they began to pick up stones to kill him, to execute him. He said, I've done a lot of good works. Why are you wanting to kill me from the good works I've done? They said, not for a good work, but because you being a man make yourself to be God. There was no question in their minds, his enemies, of who he was claiming to be. He would have to be God. He was God. To be a God-man, he'd have to be born of a virgin. To be born of a virgin, he would have to be conceived not by a human father, but by the Holy Spirit. And thus we find in our Bibles the announcement when the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and he says, Joseph, son of David, fear not to take Mary to you as your wife for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Behold, a virgin will be with child and shall bring forth a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And that God-man was born to die in our place, born to overturn what Adam did, if you will receive it.
That God-man is the one and only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And that one man stands before God and the human race, and in his glory as Savior, he eclipses and he pushes away and renders ineffective every other religion because they are all men's attempt to get somehow right with God. God has only offered one way to get right with God, Himself, His way, so He could be both just and the justifier. Have sin paid for and then be forgiving and still be flawlessly God. That's why there's only one way to God. And there's no way around that. If you want to go to heaven... You have to come through the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. And so we go from being theological now to being very practical. Do you know Christ? Have you taken the one way in? Or are you trusting in some other way? I hope you see now, there is no other way. And if you're trusting in something else, you're lost. And you will be lost forever. Unless you let go of what you've trusted in and open your heart now and ask Jesus to save you as God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. What does that take? Be honest with God. Ask him now to forgive you for your sin as the only one who can. Be willing to turn from it and ask him to give you the power to walk with him. And he will. Lay hold of him and don't ever let go. And that salvation he will give to you will be not for anything he saw in you, not for anything he will ever see in you, but for what he sees in his son, paying the full price, rendering him totally satisfied for your sins. And you can enter into that place with God where you'll be just as if you've never sinned. Sin so completely forgiven that when you commit another one, it will be as though you had just for the first time ever sinned. And when you come and you fall, you've sinned, you come to God and say, God, forgive me. It will not be as though God will say, this again? You dare to come with this again? We're on that thing again? Gabriel, Michael, this again? No! No, get out of here! To be fully justified means totally forgiven, sins blotted out, to stand as though you've never committed one sin. And when you do sin and you do come and confess... It will be with the freshness of coming to God because He's already forgotten about all the other times. And you will be able to eagerly, freshly, boldly come to the throne of God's grace and say, God, I'm here with this sin. Forgive me. And He cleanses you, makes you white as snow as it was the first time you ever came. Oh, what a glorious relationship that is with God. You've never begun that relationship. Begin it now. If you've wandered from it, come back to it now. Come to the throne of grace and bathe in the forgiveness of God. A God totally satisfied in the blood of His Son. Not in your life, but in His Son's death for you. Let's pray. Father, thank You, Lord, for Your great provision in Christ for our sin. Lord, draw those to Yourself this day that You would have to come. May we each one know, Lord the blessedness of God being the center of our lives. Take us from here, Lord, with these truths echoing in our minds and draw us further into living them out and knowing the richness of it. And Lord, may we live totally for your glory. 
may we make that our ultimate priority to be a worshiping, God-glorifying people. Lord, take us out with the responsibility to share the good news with others. And in seeking you first, may we find all other things added unto us. And Lord, we will only further glorify you as you work this in us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.